don't think it's as funny as I did. But uh, man, man, I, I got to tell you a true story. Uh, Pam and I we had not been married very long. We're sitting watching TV, and it's some holiday show, and, and the wife is given her gift, and she opens it up, and it's an iron. And she just freaks and runs out of the room crying. And I literally looked at Pam and said, what? I don't <laughs> And I realized then, okay, no irons. But anyway, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we have an opportunity to be here tonight as a church family and just to really let your word speak to us and teach us and guide us. And I thank you, Lord, for the way you brought Jesus into the world. It, it is just literally amazing to see the simplicity and beauty of a child, to, to know that it literally was going to change our lives in a way we couldn't understand. And, and people in the beginning just started to get it. They started to realize. And so I pray right now that you would just really help us to see how wise Simeon was, but also even more to pick up on the characteristics of his life and desire to live our life that way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. Uh, while you're turning there, let me uh, uh, kind of key in on what I think is our, our theme verse that, that guides us through the month of December as we talk about prophecies. And, and it's 1 Peter 1 verses 10 and 11, and it says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. I'm going to stop there. He says the prophets, how did they, they act about the things they were studying and viewing and looking at? It says they made careful searches, searches and inquiries. They didn't just take this and, and, and kind of gloss it over and ignore it. They, they dug in. They wanted to know more. And then it says they were seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They were looking for a specific person. And they knew that, that it would be a man who would appear in the time period he did. They were looking for a person and a time. And by the way, I, I want to say that that's how prophecy needs to be. This idea that it's just this kind of like a, 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 a non-specific floating, you know, kind of generality that's out there is not what we ever see when it comes to any biblical prophecy. And God tells us in Amos chapter 3 verse 7, that surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And so what we see now is we come to this point where there was a guy who got it. There was a guy who we would consider a prophet, but also he behaved in his time in his time, the way we need to behave in ours, and it's Simeon. And so Jesus has been born. The shepherds have had the announcement made. They come and are amazed at what happens. And now it's eight days later, and they're in the temple, and they're going to be dedicating Jesus. And look what happens in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And when the eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, I think most of you know it, but just in case you don't, the word Jesus is the Greek. His, his name in Hebrew was Joshua. And uh, there's only uh, two other Joshuas in Scripture. Uh, one is Joshua, the one who took over for Moses and led the people into the promised land and enacted a great victory. The other Joshua is Joshua the high priest who uh, stood uh, in an amazing vision before the Lord covered with sin. And, and Zechariah cried out in the book of Zechariah, who is there that can help him? And the Lord said, take away uh, the filth that's within him and remove it from him. And then it says, in one day, all iniquity will be removed. And, and so Jer Zechariah cries out, put a turban on his head and, and let's begin to celebrate this moment. And, and what happens is we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the two Joshua's, the king and the priest. And he's come now to be that. But not only is his name Joshua, uh, his literal name is Yahweh will bring salvation. And, and he comes as the Emmanuel, God in the flesh. But he comes as the mighty father revealed to us. And we'll see that in another prophecy we'll look at later. But, but grab hold of this. He comes to be the one who brings salvation. And we looked at that last week. That the blessing from on high would flow down and bring a cleansing. And he's the one to bring a cleansing salvation. Now, it's interesting what's going to happen next if you understand some Old Testament law. And look what it says in verse 2. And when the days of, for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, now hold this and let's turn over to the, the book of Leviticus and see what they're referring to. Did you notice it kept saying the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord. I want you to be in Leviticus chapter 12 with me and then we'll go to chapter 15. But, but this reference continually, the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord. When Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph being godly parents followed the Levitical law in, 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 in uh, what, what was to be pertaining to the birth of Jesus and who he was. And so here he is, a firstborn male, more than ever he's dedicated to God. He's been called Jesus because the angel actually said that shall be his name. And they fulfill what the angel's message was. And now they're bringing him to present him to the Lord just exactly as the book of Leviticus tells them to. And, and I think you might find this kind of a, a little interesting side note to grab hold of when you read the book of Leviticus. Notice what it says in verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel saying, when a woman gives birth... And bears a male child. Then she shall be unclean for seven days. As in the days of her menstruation. She shall be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now notice that's what happened to Jesus. He's brought on the eighth day to ha have the circumcision done. Notice in verse 4. Then she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 33 days. She shall not touch any consecrated thing. Nor enter the sanctuary. Until the days of her purification are completed. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks. I don't know if anyone's catching the difference. Did you see if it's a male child, it's one week. And if it's a female child, it's two weeks. And I, I would hope right now you're already going, well, wait a minute. That doesn't seem fair. If it's a male, she's unclean half the time than if it's a female. Let's read on and notice how that keeps coming up. It says this. Um... In verse 5, but if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks, as in the menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. Now, that means that if you start totaling it out, if it was the male child, she's unclean seven days, then they, they have the, the circumcision done, and then she has 33 more days, so it's 40 days of uncleanness if it's a male and uh, it's 14 days plus 66 days if it's a female, so it's 80 days of uncleanness if it's a female. Now, now, why? I mean, have you ever thought about that? What's going on here? Uh, is God saying that, you know, males are cleaner and better, so they only need half the amount of time? And, and you know, in our days of, of trying to understand things from our cultural setting, looking back, well, what's going on here? Uh, uh, and so you need to, you know, kind of wrestle through that, because clearly God said in Luke... That all of this was done according to the law. God loves this law. And, and you know, a lot of times people walk up and say, wait, I don't get it. You know, how is this okay? And, and I think what we might miss is this. It is God, God not speaking ill of our female gender, not attacking them. It's not saying, well, you know what, if it's a girl, oh my gosh, you know, I feel for that poor family. Uh, it's not that. What God is doing, and you need to grab a hold of this, is protecting the woman even more if it's a girl. Uh, if you begin to understand the law, this period of uncleanliness, they call it, is actually a time of more purification. And what it means is, is that during the time of purification, that she is to rest totally. She's not to cook. She's not to clean. Uh, she's not to uh, uh, have any kind of sexual relations with her husband. And if she does, then he becomes unclean during that same period of time, at least seven days. And so the bottom line is, is when that moment hit and she gave birth, there was a 40-day period after a male she was allowed to rest and an 80-day period after a female that she was allowed just to have total rest and recovery. Uh, it keeps referring to something, the blood of her menstruation. Uh, hold this, Leviticus 12, and look over at Leviticus 15 with me and notice the, the law when it comes to the menstruation period. And go to Leviticus 15, verse 19. When a woman has a discharge, if her discharge is her, her body is blood, she shall continue in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. 
Everything also on which she lies during the menstrual impurity shall be unclean. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches her shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and shall be unclean till evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean till evening. And whether it be on the bed or on the thing which she is sitting, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. And if a man actually lies with her so that her menstrual impurity is on him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which she lies shall be unclean. Now, again, what the whole point is, this idea of allowing her to rest and get purification. Uh, every now and then, it's not all that often. This isn't like the most asked question I get. But every now and then, someone will be reading through the Bible like we're going to encourage you to do as you journal. And you'll be reading into Leviticus, and you'll hit this section. And, and I can almost guarantee you it'll be someone who wasn't here on this night. They'll be coming up and say, I just got a question, and I don't even know how to ask this. What is up with Leviticus 15? Is it saying that the woman's cursed? And when you begin to understand it, I want to ask, especially the women who are here, do you really want to, uh, you know, if you understand this, do you see it as a curse? If we were following this, are you ready for this? If we were following this for all the girls and all the women in the room, that means that when your time of menstrual menstruation hit, you would have to get off from work. You wouldn't be allowed to go to work. You wouldn't be allowed to clean the house. You wouldn't be allowed to wash dishes. Uh, 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 everybody else would have to do all your work for you. And that would be for at least a week a month. Every single month, you get one week of total relaxation. Does that seem like a curse? Uh, do all the women here go, oh, I'd hate that. A week off a month. A week off with my husband and family waiting on me. A week off from them doing all the cooking, all the cleaning. Uh, a week off, if I had a job, I can't go and do my job. I just have to kick back. and See, that, that's what happened. God gave this time of, of literal rest. Now, there were some, some hygiene issues involved here, but that's what God's doing. And he's literally saying, you get a full week off. I know some of the women who are sitting here are saying, bring back the law. Bring back, you know, and, uh, because that's exactly what this was about. And it was a time of honor and a, a time of rest. And if you had children, other women would pitch in and take care of your kids. Uh, if you're a young mom, uh, that meant when your kid's crying in the middle of the night, you can't go get it. You get to sleep that whole week. I know a lot of the women are going, oh, more than ever, bring back the law. And, uh, you know, and, and, and when you begin to understand how the, the actual practicality of this worked, it became an amazing protection, which now let's go back to Leviticus 12 and think this through. If it's a male child, it's 40 days of rest. If it's a female child, it's 80 days. Does that, it, it, do you get why? Think about it. Back in those days, what was valued more, a male or a female child? A male. Yeah, the male child was more valued because he could go and work in the field. He could actually uh, uh, go do more. He would father in his follow, uh, follow in his father's footsteps. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you're aware of this, and a lot of you are, but, but up until probably about the 1940s and 50s, uh, uh, it was said for every child you had, especially a male, that to the family, especially if you were in an agricultural setting, some of you grew up in agricultural settings, and if you grew up in an agricultural farm-like setting, if you were a boy six or seven, you were given chores to do, right? Uh, and when you got 10 or 11, 12, you would do even more work around there. It, it was, it's been said by economists who studied that up until about the 1950s and maybe World War II and the big shift in the Industrial Revolution really took hold, that a male child would be worth to the family about $120,000 worth of labor. Every male you had was like getting $100,000. Now, by the way, in our market today, I want to ask you, what do we say about kids? Do we go, oh, man, you guys are so lucky to have those four kids. You're banking, man. They're making money for you. No, today they're saying a child costs you between two hundred and fifty and 500000 to have. They're an outlay of cash. Before, they were a benefit to you. Now, today, they cost you money. Right? Isn't that true, all of you who are parents? I mean, you don't go, man, we're going to be making money on these kids. And back in those days, they did. And back in the time that this law was written, the children were, were immensely helpful. And the more you could have, the more work you could accomplish. And the more you could uh, find yourself prospering. But here's the key. The male would be worth more than the female was worth. 
And so the reality was is that if you had a female child, not only was she not going to benefit you as much in production uh, in most agricultural type settings, are you ready for this? You also had to set aside money, what was called a dowry for her. And the dowry typically would be enough money to cover her for between one year and 10 years of income if something happened to her husband. And so now not only is this girl not going to produce as much for you, the reality is, is you've got to start setting aside money for her. So, what is God doing here? All of a sudden, they're about to have a child. And the couple's all excited. And they don't have the benefit of what we have today of a 4D ultrasound to tell you the sex ahead of time. So they stand there waiting. And, and then they announce, it's a... And if they said, boy, the dad's like, yeah... Carry on the family name. Our family's more powerful. I can, you know, he, he, can, he can marry and have more kids that actually feed into us. I mean, that's what he's thinking. And, and so if he has a son, he's just rejoicing and cherishing and everything's fine. It's not that he wouldn't love his daughter, but if he has the daughter, it's like, oh, well, that's good. But when are we going to have another kid? You know, and, uh, and, and, and so here's the point. You ready? God said, if it's a girl, I want you husbands to no, do nothing but help her and care for her for an extra 40 days of time. You don't touch her. You let her go. You give her enough time to heal before she becomes to a place where you agree together to have a child. It, it was God's protection. And by the way, some people look at this as a curse that, and say that, look at God's demeaning to women. No, the truth of the matter is God knows men and had to protect women. That, that's what this really comes down to. And uh, if you don't understand where I'm going with that, then Mike Long and Tony will explain it later. Uh, but... but now what do we go back to Leviticus 12 and let's pick up what's going on here with Jesus himself. It's been seven days of uncleanliness, seven days of purification. They bring Jesus to be circumcised according to the law. And, and what do they bring? Remember it says they brought two, two turtle doves, or young pigeons. Now why is that important? Look at verse 6. When the days of her purification are completed for a son or a daughter... She shall bring the priest at the doorway of the tent of the meeting, a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then she shall offer it to the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. And this is the law for her who bears a child, whether male or female. Now, verse 8 is important. But if she cannot afford a lamb, now I want you to let that sink in. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. The one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Now, what's going on here is, if you didn't catch it, is that when Joseph and Mary come, if you look back in Luke chapter 2, verse 23, uh, it begins to talk about this. Then in verse 24, it says they brought a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. It, it, to me, this is like incredible. And it may not grab you, but, but don't miss this. It tells us that Joseph and Mary were poor. It tells us that Joseph and Mary didn't have the means. And, and, and if you didn't grab it, God in his sovereignty, God in his wisdom, picked out a couple who would be the mother and father of Jesus when he would come into this world. And he chose a family that wasn't the wealthy family. And he chose a family that didn't have the huge name. And he didn't choose the family that everybody would stop and look at their house and say, oh, what an incredible home. He didn't look at the family who would come in and make the huge sacrifice and, and for their child and then go out and throw the huge party because they just didn't have the means to do it. That Jesus would choose on purpose to live a simpler life, a life that was more without materialism or anything within it. That that's who Jesus chose to be with. And Mary, probably 13 or 14, and Joseph, maybe 25 or, or in that age, would have stood there. And they would have been so enamored with this young child. But they just wouldn't have all the things if he had been chosen to be born into royalty or to high-level commerce or anything like that. And, and maybe, maybe without a doubt, not just maybe for sure. God's driven us a message here. That happiness is not built on things. That joy in a, in a great family isn't about all the possessions we have. And, and we need to grab a hold of that. I don't know if you would be willing to say this with me. 
But if we were to get real honest about who we are in life, let me tell you what I'd say. Uh, you know how you, a person goes into an, a self-help group and, and begins to interact with other people for encouragement. And they say, hi, you ready for this? Hi, I'm Chuck. And I struggle with materialism. I, I really do. And I think we perpetuated this. Uh, uh, when a young couple gets ready to get married, we hear things like, well, they got to have two cars, and they got to have a house, and they got to have all the things they need. And, and, and let me tell you that, that as someone who's watched young couples come in, I've seen the ones who, who have the car and house have a great marriage, but I've seen the ones who have the little tiny apartment, and they didn't have a TV. And by the way, when I do premarital, I always tell them, don't get a TV. For at least a year, don't have a TV. Just sit and look at each other. You know, and, uh, uh, and have to talk. But, but you know what? We act like, no, they've got to have more. They've got to have more. And then a lot of caring parents say these words. I want them to have more than we had. But, but you know what message we're sending is having more will make you happier. And deep down, we all know that's not true. And when Jesus chose to come and live in a family, what was he looking for? And I believe that we'd agree with this. Mary really was an amazingly godly young girl who would be an amazingly godly, caring mother. And she didn't have to have all the stuff. She didn't have to have the acclaim. And neither did Joseph. And, and when Jesus chose, on that day of his dedication, one of the most joyous, incredible days ever, you know what happened is, is they just stood there and, and they said, we just want to praise God and we're going to offer as our offering two pigeons and, and the priest would have taken them, and that would have been a sign to everybody, you just don't have the means. You just can't afford it. But they had everything that mattered. And the message of Christmas, we can't miss that. Why was he a child in a manger? Well, you know what? That's part of the message, the simplicity. And, and, and it wasn't to be born into a situation that wasn't wonderful. It was going to be amazingly wonderful. And, and when we think of Christmas, we need to grab hold of that. I, I don't want to get on a soapbox too much, but I think almost everybody here, I'm going to bet money we all agree that it's kind of amazing that what we've taken this the Christmas season and done is we have taken this very simple lifestyle that was given to Jesus being born in a manger and swaddling clothes and two young pigeons being offered. And we said, let's celebrate this by buying tons of stuff and by going into debt together and getting us stuff that we'll have to pay off. Isn't it kind of amazing that that's what we've done with this? And, 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 and there really is a message here. We just don't want to miss. But let's get to Simeon. I want you to look at what happens here when you get into Luke chapter 2 and start in verse 25. And then there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout and looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and he blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Grab hold of this. This man comes in and God had said to him through the Holy Spirit, Simeon, you will not die till you look upon the Messiah. You look upon the Christ. And, and, and look at the description of, of the lifestyle he led to be able to be in tune to a message like that. First of all, back in verse 25, it says this man was righteous. The word righteous literally means right, just, or innocent. But, but here's what's interesting. According to the complete word study of the Greek New Testament, uh, an amazingly cool word study dictionary. It says the best translation of this word is he was someone who lived a life that conformed to what is right. Uh, the, the mold that he was pressed into was one of living correctly and doing right. And this is Simeon who was so in tune to the Spirit, the Spirit spoke and said, you will not miss the Messiah when he comes and you'll live out his days. Uh, he was someone who lived out of Romans 12, 1 and 2 that says, therefore... I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. Did you catch that? He was conformed to righteousness, not conformed to the world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice his conforming, his confirmation was to righteousness, to doing things correctly, to following the ways of God, not to the world around him. And the darker the world gets and the more it sinks into the depravity we see actually growing, the reality is the more we should stand out as loving, kind, lights that shine in the midst of a cold, hard darkness. And Simeon was a man who would have done that. He was conformed to the righteousness of God. And by the way, we need to live lives like that. Noah was like that. In Genesis 6, verse 9, it says, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. And I hope you and I would say that's our dream, that's our hope, that's our goal, that we would be people like Noah, who a very unrighteous generation would choose to live a righteous life and try to be as much as possible blameless in our time. 1 Peter 1, or 4, 1 to 5 is the calling that Peter gives to the people of his day. And I want you to think about how much it should apply to our day. And it says this, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the lifetime in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time is already past and is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He said, you know what, that's, that's the way everybody else lives. Lust, sensuality, drinking parties, idolatry. He says, that's how everybody else around you lives. And in verse 4 it says, in all this they're surprised that you do not run in the same excesses of dissipation. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Let me say this as clearly as I can, is that, you know, it's not about us having a holier-than-thou attitude, but it is about us having a holy attitude. It's about us, if we're going to be a person like Simeon, conforming to the righteousness of Jesus, not conforming to the ways of the world. There ought to be a difference between Christians and those who do not know Christ. We ought to live differently. And it's not just about all the things we don't do, uh, but it is about things we don't do. You know, certainly part of the way we stand is being kind, loving, and caring, and not holding grudges. But, but it's also about saying we don't want to be uh, uh, living the same with sexual depravity the world has. And by the way, the world doesn't get it. They just don't get it. Without being too overly political and understanding it's a moral issue, Prop 8 is a clear sign that the world around us doesn't get it. And it's amazing how surprised people are that we Christians actually take a stand against sex, any kind of sex outside of marriage. Uh, it, it, it's, it, we live in a world today, and, and this has changed since I was first in youth ministry, where when we talk about abstinence for teenagers, people look at us like, who are you? They can't understand it. But see, we need to look strange to the world. And I hope you want to look strange to the world. I really do hope you do. I mean, I don't want to fall in with the nearly 30 to 40% of men who've committed adultery. I hope I look strange to them and I don't have any action like they have. I hope that the relationship that I can carry in, in my video rental would be one anybody could look at and go, oh my gosh, you've never viewed anything that's out there like that. And I, it's strange to the world. I hope that, you know what, is that, that when it comes to, to, to alcoholic beverages or drugs or any of that, we're strange to the world because we don't crave the drunkenness. We don't crave the party. We don't crave the excess. And uh, by the way, that's not the message you see on TV. And the people look at us and go, oh, you poor Christians. And you know what, we, they're surprised. And they malign us and they mock us. And, and let me say, you know, let's, let's get mocked. <laughs> let's get maligned. And, uh, you know, we need to be different. Simeon was conformed to the righteousness of God. 
Now, that's why he heard from the Lord. In Matthew 6, verse 33, it says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, and we talked today about, you know, a part of the reason God creates effective prayer in our life is based on us seeking to follow him in a sold-out view. The first thing is he was righteous. Notice, again, in verse 25. This man was righteous and devout. I love that word, devout. And being a devout person. Now, you may not like the definition, but I want you to think about it with me. The word devout literally means carefully religious. Now, I know and you know that there's a difference between Christianity being a religion and being a relationship. We know we don't want to be religious only in outward ways. But, but there's a good side to the religious view. And, and it says Simeon was carefully religious. Another way to translate that is he was God-fearing. He was God-fearing. Job was a man like that. In Job 1.1, when God was, was pointing Job out, it says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, and catch this, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's why Job stood out to God, because he was God-fearing and turned away from evil and conformed himself to the things of God. Simeon stood out for the very same reason. And when it comes to God, there are some things that should cause us to be a little fearful. And the idea is that we would have circumspection to our living. We would be circumspectively living. We examine things and ask God, are we okay? Now, let me say this, and I think everybody knows it, but let me say it as clearly as you can. You cannot be devout by accident. You're not just going to get up in the morning and go, wow, I just be, end up being devout today without trying. There's got to be effort to de being devout. Uh, a, a life of holiness, a life of, of God-fearingness causes us to look at ourselves and causes us to take action. And we have to be watchful and we have to be careful. I, I'm intrigued by this. I don't know if you are. The apostles raised in a Jewish setting would have been in part of prayer services all the time. But then they get around Jesus. And remember what they said to Jesus? They said, would you teach us how to pray? Would you teach us how to pray? You see, the prayer life of Jesus didn't happen by accident. He, he on purpose set aside times to go in and really be in, involved with meeting with the Father. He, he would distance himself with other people to being in contact and connection with him. To live a Christ-like life, a devout life, it's just not going to happen by accident. You have to be intentional about it. And, and I want to say this. You've got to have times you're just going to set apart. George Mueller was famous for that, where he would literally set apart two or three hours a day just to be with God. And you know what? I'm not sure how you're going to do it or how you're going to act it, but every one of us have to choose to do it. A, a, a devout person, one of the things we, we would want to do if we're devout is meditate. You don't just all of a sudden happen to meditate. You're going to have to actually choose to pick out the scripture, choose to set aside time, choose to put effort into it. That's what a devout person does. And again, it's not again, it's supposed to be a holier-than-thou attitude, but the reality is there's holiness involved in it, and we need to have that kind of, uh, of desire, that kind of action that we're supposed to have in it. Um, Years ago, I was overseeing a, a summer camp at Angeles Crest for Not Avenue Christian Church and a bunch of other churches. And uh, what happened is we're all having this amazing camp and things are going great and God's moving and the worship's incredible. And, and then it came time after a, a particular worship service and time to take a break. And so all the kids are going down there and I, I did what every great youth pastor does. I'm scanning the room and counting to make sure I have all my students where they're supposed to be. Because I found that high school students and college students become incredibly spiritual in the mountains in the dark. Uh, they just feel called to go away in twos and pray. <laughs> Speaking in tongues. No. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking and I'm missing two guys and two girls. So I'm thinking, oh, great. So one of them I realized right away is Bobby Tymar, who's one of my real spiritual leaders. So I'm going to look for him, and I, I bump into this girl, uh, Janet, and she's walking towards me, and Janet looks at me like something just freaked her out, and I said, what is it? And she goes, Chuck, we went off to pray. And I thought, what? And he goes, no, no, we really went off to pray. And she goes, I, I, it scared me to death. I don't know what's going on. The way Bobby prays scared me. And I thought, well, what could it be? So anyway, then we have a, a prayer meeting that night. We all gather together, and, and we go to prayer time, and Bobby starts praying, and there really was a difference between the way Bobby prayed and everybody else did. 
And, and, and it wasn't freaky in a bad way, but it was personal. He was talking to God. And he was excited to talk to God. And it was meaningful. And, 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 and he was tuning in. And, and I kept thinking, okay, wait a minute. If people have a problem with this, we've got to really teach prayer. But I'll never forget what happened as we get back and Bobby got permission from his parents to come and see me. So he gets out of school early and he comes over. He goes, Chuck, I, I don't know people. I, I heard I freaked them out. I scared them to death. And, and he said, it's over prayer. And I said, yeah, Bob, you did. And he looked at me and he said, well, Chuck, I just don't get it. Because they kept like going, well, why are you doing this? And they kind of were attacking me. And then I would look at him and say, guys, don't you just kind of go away with God? And like you pray for over an hour and, and it just flies by. And he goes, Chuck, I don't know if you're going to believe this. But there's not one person in the youth group that prays for over an hour with God. And I sat there going, oh. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. And I think it in my mind, don't ask me if I do. Because I didn't. I didn't. I was content with sitting down before a meal and saying, thank you, Lord, for the meal. And, uh, that was it. I was content with getting a few people say, God, please bless this worship service and walking away. That's, I went all the way in the ministry that way. I'm not blaming anybody but me. But I realized talking with a young high school guy, I've got to get my act together. And, and if I, that was how I carried on my relationship with Pam, we'd have a horrible marriage. I had to develop a devout lifestyle that would be real. I had to start having real prayer times with God, real quality meetings with him. Man, I really get to know him. And uh, it would not happen by accident. And a young high school guy really challenged me to say, get your prayer life together. Make it intentional. Uh, another pastor challenged me about meditation. You've got to start meditating. And and. and it just is so interesting how those things can slide by. But God says, if you want to get messages from me that matter, then you're going to have to have the kind of attitude a Simeon had. So he was, he was conforming to righteousness. He was devout. And now notice the next one here. It says in verse 25, he was looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. And that he was saying, you know what? The Messiah is promised, and he's going to come, and I'm looking for him, and I'm eager for him, and I want him. Remember what we saw in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. It says the prophets made careful search and inquiry. They, they were looking. Now, I got to say this. It's kind of interesting that today in the church, I know there's different views when it comes to the last days. And I don't mind us having a difference about it. I don't mind that some you know, people have a premillennial view and some have an amillennial view. And, and I love to discuss and study it. And there are awesome Christians on, on, in, in each camp. And it's not about a superiority. But let me say this as clearly as I can. No matter what view someone holds, the Bible clearly teaches we look for the coming of Jesus. We, we wait for it. We beg for it. We keep our eye on it. We get excited about it. That's what we need to do. You know, it blows me away that in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men show up and they say, where is he who is born king of the Jews? The Pharisees say, and the priests and scribes say, oh, he's in Bethlehem. And they never go look for him. We don't want to be people who don't look for him. As a matter of fact, clearly the Bible says we should. Titus 2.13 says we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It says that one of the keys to who we are is that we're looking for him. We get excited about it. Philippians 3.20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into a conformity of the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power, he has to even subject all things unto himself. Did you hear what Paul said? He said, we are eagerly waiting for the Savior. We can't wait for him to come. Uh, and, and I would say, I hope that's your attitude. You know, that what you're doing is you're steady, carefully searching the scriptures and you're studying the things about the second coming of Christ just like they did the first. And you're saying, I can't wait to see you. I can't wait till you appear. I can't, and you're eager for it and excited about it. In Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28, it says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Now notice this last part of the line. To those who eagerly wait for him. To those who eagerly wait. He says, I can't wait to appear. For those who are really excited about my coming, I can't wait for it to happen. 
In other words, it's anything but an apathetic attitude. It's anything but, well, I'll just wait and see how it happens. It needs to be, I can't wait. I can't wait. I, I'm looking and watching and getting excited. And in 1 Corinthians 16, I love this. Paul says, if anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he says the word Maranatha. The Holy Spirit, Maranatha, O Lord God, come quickly. Maranatha, O Lord God, come quickly. It's, I can't wait. And I hope that you would begin praying that prayer. And I know all the time I bump into people, and it's not really, I'm not going to try to make this this horrible, evil thing, but, but I, I bumped into a young girl once who said, I want Jesus to come, but I want to get married first. And I thought, okay, I can kind of understand that. And I bumped into this other girl who said to me, Chuck, I, I want Jesus to come, but, but I want to get pregnant and, and have a baby before he comes. And I'm like, oh, okay. And, and I told one girl, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pray that you get your wish, that you get pregnant, and then you go into labor, and after 42 hours of labor, you're, you're, you're paying you're at the very end and they're going to go it's up and we all rapture I said I just think that'd be great and you know I understand that that we look at some of those things but don't miss this when he comes it's going to be better for you when he calls you into heaven it's going to be better for you when the rapture happens I promise you you're not going to get up there and go I'm a little disappointed can I go back down there (laughs) think about it as much as we love Jesus now what happens when you see him face to face Do you think you're going to be disappointed? Do you think you're going to go, oh, but, you know, I really wanted to know the outcome of San Diego and Denver, even though I do root for San Diego. But but you really, I think you won't really care. And here's the point. We should be eager for that. We should be excited for that. And, And that's what Simeon was. He couldn't wait. He couldn't wait. He couldn't wait. So what happened? It says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, it's interesting that three different ways it says the Spirit was active in his life. It says, number one, the Holy Spirit was upon him. And the word upon literally means to breathe upon. It was like as he walked, the Holy Spirit was breathing on him as he went. And by the way, it wasn't just for Simeon. You and I can live a life so in tune with God. And I know this would be true for any of us. Uh, But we can live a life so in tune for God that we're so close to him that the breath of the Spirit is breathing on us as we move. Could you imagine how incredible that would be? It says that the Holy Spirit was upon him or breathing upon him. The next thing it says is this, that the Holy Spirit had revealed to him, verse 26, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord spoke to him. The Holy Spirit did that to him. And, and I want to tell you, I think that's possible for us today. This, you may not agree. I'm just going to tell you, I believe this is what Scripture shows. I think it's possible that you'll be praying. And while none of us are ever know the day or hour, that you're going to turn on the news like many people did today. And we're going to see that Israel is under attack again. And the bombs are flying and the missiles are being set off. And, and Israel's trying to decide how to respond without igniting another war in the Middle East that could go to a level that's unbelievable as Hamas is on the attack. And I think one of the days we're going to turn it off and we're on and all of a sudden you'll sit there and you'll have a, have a whisper in your mind saying, this is really it. This isn't just a setup, this is it. Then, you know, a, a leader's going to appear in the European community and uh, he's going to come on the news and you're going to be looking and I think the Holy Spirit's going to whisper to somebody, you've been, you've been wondering who he is, there he is. That's him. And you're going to go, oh, this is it. You know, and I don't know the, how long we have, if we have a day or a year. I really think the Holy Spirit's going to tell you. I think you're going to know. I, I think that if you're looking and you're eager, just like Simeon did, you're going to have the Lord say, you know what? You're not going to die before the rapture happens. You get to go. And I think that's going to happen because that's what happened to Simeon. And he was looking for it and excited about it. And the Holy Spirit was upon him and it was moving in him and it was drawing him in this moment. And it was revealed to him that, you know what, this is going to happen to you. Now, not only do I, I use the idea of Simeon himself as an example of how God worked in the first coming of Christ to how he'd work in the second, let me say this to you. I think that's what 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 is talking about. When it says not just about the issue of the last days and prophecy and revealing of things, but life in general, it says, just as it is written, thing which eye has not seen, And ear has not heard, and which has not entered into the heart of man, all that God prepares for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. I think the Holy Spirit works that way. 
And you know what? When you study scripture and you carefully search and inquire as the way the Bible shows us the prophets did and the way we should follow their example in doing, you look at a Simeon and see how he searched and looked and then a point came where the Lord said, this is the thing you've been studying. This is what you've been looking for. And you know what? There's going to come a day where they're going to announce a peace treaty in Israel and they're going to say that, that as a sign of peace, that they're going to allow the temple to be built next to the Dome of the Rock. And they're going to have a Christian structure there so that Islam and Judaism and Christianity will share an international Jewish or international site. And, and that now that treaty's been made. Man, everybody here, the minute that the temple's announced to be built, you ought to go, that's it. I've been studying. I see it coming. And, and so when we begin to see those kind of things happening, uh, you're going to know. Now, how long will we be here in the midst of what's described? Well, I'm not always sure, but I can tell you this, that as they happen and as you look, God's great desire is that you would catch all those kinds of things that were coming. And so what happened is Simeon did that. He showed up at the temple uh, believing and trusting and looking and desiring, and, and, and God showed him that. And look what he says here in verse 34. He says this, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary and his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. Now, don't miss this, and for a sign to be opposed. Today is Jesus a sign that's opposed very often. Oh, you know it. I can't tell you the number of times I go to different organizational groups and they'll say, Would you say the prayer to open today? And I'll say, Oh, I'd love to. They go, Could you please not use Jesus' name? Could you just use God? Have you noticed that? I mean, if you walk out and say, I believe in God, everyone's like, oh, good, good. I believe that Jesus is really the son of God, God in the flesh, and he's the only way of salvation. How many cheers do we get for that today? And uh, he's assigned to be opposed. Verse 35, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What's the sword that pierces the soul? I know what happened, and so do you. He's holding Jesus, and he looks at Mary. He said, this child, one day you're, it's going to pierce you to the depth of your soul to see what happens to him. Mary, one day you're going to stand before a cross, and this young child you love will grow to be a man, and they're going to mock him and torture him and brutalize him, and it's going to kill you inside to see it happen. Anybody here who's a parent, when your child gets hurt, it, it kills you. Anybody here who's a parent would say this, you know what, I, I would rather have the pain and take it on myself than see my child suffer. And Simeon says, Mary, the, you need to know you're going to see him suffer. And, and yet, what's going to happen, it will reveal the hearts, the thoughts of people. Jesus is the great revealer of who we really are. And the closer we get to him, the more we should realize some things. Number one, that God does love us with everything he has. But number two, the Lord wants to reveal to you areas that you need to grow and that I need to grow, areas that we need to improve. And, and it's a God of love who says, I have made you to live an amazing life. And you and I are called to be a part of that. But, but how do we get there? Well, we need to look at a guy like Simeon. We want to be conformed to righteousness. We want to be intentionally devout. We, we want to be people who look Look for the coming of the Lord. It's a positive thing when you and I study and look for that. And uh, he says, when you have that kind of relationship with me, you get excited. By the way, I think you'd agree with this. Why are we so excited for the coming of Jesus? Because we love him. And I can promise you this, he loves you. And he can't wait to be with you. And tonight, if you're not in a love relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you into one. How do you enter it? The Bible's clear. You call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You call out to him and say, I want this, Lord. And if you right now are not in a, a relationship with God that's real, where the Holy Spirit's stirring inside of you, where, where you're being drawn into this amazing relationship, where you love praying and sharing with him, then you know what? We want to help you get there. But the first step is for you to commit yourself to the Lord. And if you've maybe at one point had a commitment to Christ, but that's not how you're feeling. You don't have that first love that the Bible talks about. Then we want to encourage you to recommit. And if you're brand new to, to all of this, let me tell you that we want to help you so much that in this moment we're going to go to prayer. And in the middle of the prayer time, I'm going to stop and I'm going to invite anybody who wants to, to pray a prayer, to whisper it right where you're sitting with me, where you can say to the Lord, I want to be right with you and I want to be close to you. I want to have this relationship. I want the life you have for me. 
And tonight, if you sense that you need to do that, then God wants you. And I'll ask you right where you're sitting to pray with me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for this evening. And God, I pray that we would learn from the prophet Simeon. And we would want to live lives, Lord, that are conformed to righteousness, not conformed to the world. And yet when we mess up, we would go, Lord, to Jesus and let him cleanse us in a way that would make us new and alive. I pray, Father, we'd want to be purposefully devout in prayer and in study, in meditation, in, in quality times, just experiencing your love and, and a connection to you. And I pray that if there's someone here tonight who's struggling with that, that, Lord, you would now stir inside them and help them so that they would grow in this loving, intimate relationship you want them to have. And, Father, I want to pray that we would be those who look for your coming. And I know in my heart I say it all the time, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. And I can't wait till you do. But I pray right now that you would stir in us to be a church that's willing to study and have made careful inquiry into what your word says about those days and the days we live in. And Father, most of all now I pray that you would stir in the hearts of anybody who needs to commit their life to you. They need to come to you or they need to come back to you. God, I pray that you would begin to touch them. And right where they're sitting, they would know this is their time, this is their moment. And Lord, that you want them. And I pray, God, you would stir in such a way that they would want to pray this prayer and, and say to you that this is what they want. And they'd claim it. I want to ask that we keep praying tonight. If you're right with God, would you pray for anybody who needs to make a decision? But tonight, if you need to either commit your life to the Lord or recommit, you need to come into this relationship with him. I'm going to ask you to whisper that prayer with me. But I'd like to know this. If anyone's going to pray with me tonight, if you're going to say, I want God or I want to come back, would you let me know you're going to pray this prayer by lifting your hand in the air and look at me, and then you can put it down. Is God touching anybody tonight? And tonight's your night. If so, just lift your hand where I can see you. Praise God. Right over here I see. Praise the Lord for you. Wow. That is so awesome. And right here, praise God. Let me take a second more. Anybody else I haven't seen yet? Right here, praise the Lord. Man, that's awesome. Wow. It helps me to know who God's calling for each of you. That's incredible. A second more. Anybody I haven't seen yet? If you haven't, right over here, praise the Lord for you. Wow. Each one of you, God cares about you and loves you. So let's just whisper this prayer together. Say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, to heal me of my hurts, to make me new and alive, and to make me yours. And I want this. And I want you. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit. And help me be who you have always created me to be and to live the life you have for me to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, praise God for each one of you who prayed that tonight. Praise the Lord.